Hi, everybody. It's Bean, and welcome to an all-new Great Moments in Weed History. In this episode, which I'm calling What Your Doctor Doesn't Know or Won't Tell You About Medical Cannabis, we're going to talk with a very cool doctor who has been studying the therapeutic effects of cannabis for more than 50 years. That's right, half a century. Dr. Jeffrey Hergenrather, my esteemed guest this weed, is a tireless advocate for safe access to our favorite life-saving plant, including as a founding member and one-time president of the Society of Cannabis Clinicians, the oldest organization of physicians specializing in the use of cannabis as medicine. As you're about to hear, even way back as a medical student in the early 1970s, the good doctor recognized that cannabis has tremendous utility in alleviating suffering and promoting good health. This, despite a coordinated and uh, ongoing to this day propaganda campaign against the plant by the government, the pharmaceutical industry, the media, and much of the medical establishment. So, how did Dr. Hergen rather see through all of that bullshit? Firstly, by smoking weed, of course, same way we all did. Then, shortly after becoming a doctor, he witnessed firsthand the plant's incredible potential for treating a wide variety of conditions during the seven years he served as in-house physician at The Farm, a legendary counterculture commune in rural Tennessee. Hey, hey, Doc. It's me, Sunshine Rainbow. Sorry, sorry to wake you up. Uh, my neuropathic pain is flaring up again. Do you think I should? Uh, you think I should smoke an indica or a sativa? We'll hear lots more about that experience in the episode. For a little background, the farm was founded in 1971 by Stephen and Ina Mae Gaskin as an intentional community based on principles of nonviolence and respect. For the earth. The original counterculture crew that became the farm first coalesced at a series of free Monday night classes attended by thousands of hippies that Stephen Gaskin hosted in the San Francisco Bay Area. Then they embarked together upon a cross country psychedelic bus journey to find their current home. Yes, the farm is still going strong out in rural Tennessee. Another important person mentioned in this episode is Dr. Todd Micaria, who is one of the leading advocates for medical cannabis among physicians and served as a co author of Proposition 215, which made California the first state to legalize medical cannabis. Now, buckle up, because we're about to experience several great moments in weed history via the incredible life story of Dr. Hergen Rather. And we also discuss how to talk to your doctor about medical cannabis, how to convince grandma to give it a try, and how exactly a single, miraculous, beautiful, wonderful, life-affirming, life-saving plant can be so incredibly efficacious for so many different ailments. But first, I want to stop and say a huge thank you to everyone who contributes to this podcast on Patreon. Your support helps us share these incredible stories with people all around the world and inspire them to fight for safe, legal access to cannabis 
for all those in need. If you want to throw in on this shit, it's easy. Just go to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com and you can sign up for as little as $1. You'll get tons of bonus content, including the video version of this podcast. What's up? I'm waving at you. Plus, special access to our secret seshes and you will get ad-free versions of every episode of the podcast. Visit greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. You can put five on it. Or for just a little more, you can get a signed copy of my book, How to Smoke Pop Properly, mailed directly to your door. I'm always so thrilled and honored to personally inscribe those tomes and put them in the mail. And so thank you for contributing at that level. Also, if you don't have the cashola right now to spare, maybe you're saving up for that next eighth. I totally understand it. The one thing you can do that's free and freeing and wonderful is to just simply tell some of your weed-loving friends about this podcast. As longtime listeners know, we are throttled in every way trying to get the word out about the show simply because we tell the truth about weed. We cannot advertise our posts are uh, shoved underground, and then, I, and then I believe they build uh, garbage dumps on top of all of our social media posts. So unless you're going to dig through the muck and the mire, you will really probably only hear about this show in the most peer-to-peer way imaginable, and that is every time you pass somebody a joint or a bowl or a bong, you also say, hey, have you heard about this show, Great Moments in Weed history we would greatly appreciate it and of course if you subscribe to the podcast then you yes you won't ever miss an episode one listening note as you experience this transmission i'm actually out in the desert at burning man i'm working a three-week gig there uh, so this intro was recorded well in advance of publication that explains why i haven't mentioned that aliens landed on the front lawn of the white house and demanded we hand over all of our best cush strains more on that next weed i guess no seriously uh anyway if you're heading to burning man and it's still yet to happen when you are listening to this transmission please drop me a line info at great moments in weed history.com and maybe we can meet up in the dust and take a bike ride right now what we need to do is get ourselves properly settled in for this weeds episode of the podcast i have got a pod tone ready to puff it is full of delicious and uh dare i say nutritious rosin but what and this is more than a rhetorical question if you yes you yep you are not similarly appropriately lit up to delve into this fascinating discussion don't freak out let your freak flag fly but don't freak out because there is a safe and efficacious remedy for that situation as well you simply need to hit pause and then you can use that time at your leisure to roll yourself a joint to split a blunt to pack a bong to puff a pod tone or to eat the exact amount of edibles you need to get where you want to be and not one edible more because when you are properly lit 
and you hit unpause, my promise to you, as always, is that once you are ready, we'll all be ready for another great moment in weed history. Welcome to Great Moments in Weed History. It is an honor and a pleasure to be talking with you today. Thank you, David. I'm glad to be here. Appreciate the invitation. So we're going to start where we love to start on this program. When and where and how did cannabis first enter your life? I go back to actually uh, visiting a couple homes of of high school students back in 1965, I believe, where cannabis was being experimented with. And as a young athlete aspiring to uh, get into a, a good school and be uh, in an athletic program, I thought, eh, this isn't maybe the time for me. So I actually was watching and listening, but I was hands-off until my first year in college, which was 1966. At the University of Colorado, I finally came around to thinking, I want to try this, because I've got friends that were using it, and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band had just come out, and Donovan was singing about Mellow Yellow, which I don't know even what it was about, but I, I think I tried smoking some some banana peel strings <laughs> <laughs> and how did that go <laughs> not well at all it, it was it just got me thinking okay i really want to try the real thing <laughs> okay so maybe set that scene for us are we on campus and what was going on inside you and, and how did the that first experience treat you it was a, a laugh. I loved it. I thought it was very entertaining and fun, and we burned and we laughed, and it was it was surprisingly enjoyable. And looking back now, you know, uh, with all your experience, uh, medicinally, recreationally, and otherwise, with cannabis, do you have any sense memory of what that cannabis looked like, where it might have come from, you know? Boy, at that time, not really. Uh, campus had cannabis coming through regularly at that time, but uh, I, I really don't know the details other than just a, a good old high THC cannabis. As far as indica sativas or names, I, I don't. I don't recall back in those days what it might have been. Okay. Well, we've all heard this sort of propaganda that, oh, the cannabis is so much stronger today. And of course, it, it is by certain qualitative measures, but it definitely worked back in the 60s and got you high, right? Absolutely. And the same varieties then, I've come to believe, grown under optimal conditions with, you know, selecting for the, the girls, uh, you're going to have high quality cannabis with any of those varietals is my true belief. Uh, not an unusual uh, path to cannabis for someone of your uh, generation to, to try it in college in the mid-60s, this sort of first rush of psychedelia, this sort of uh, move from the beatnik era to the early hippie era. 
when did you realize this is going to be something important in my life? When I got to medical school, I actually started to study cannabis in the library, even with the busy schedule as a a first-year medical student. I just thought, this is unique. I'm looking at the library and seeing very polarized information. This is before the Controlled Substances Act in 1970. And I thought, there's there's a lot here that I don't understand that I want to get, but as I say, the literature was polarized. Some things were saying this is so valuable and such a good medicine for so many things. And on the other hand, another article will be devil's weed, dangerous. I recognized that this was an herbal medicine that really had some interesting utility. I didn't know quite for what other than feeling happy and uplifting and reduction of anxiety. And even if I had a huge amount of responsibilities in my in my school life, it was a nice break. It wasn't alcohol. It was something that was fairly con- easily controlled and limited, but very pleasurable and a, a, a nice alternative to having a drink, which was typical in my parents' uh, lives. So I liked it, and I thought there was a place for it. There's a funny story there. The medical school at Brown University, actually there was one back in the 1830s. And the students got into trouble putting a cadaver in a barrel, rolling it down the college hill, breaking open on a bar, grand jury investigation. They shut down the medical school for 130 years. And ours was this first class to be the new doctors coming into the Brown University medical program. And so I'm guessing they gave you a a talk on the first day that said, keep the weed smoking down and no rolling cadavers down the hill in a barrel. Uh, It could have happened, but they they weren't quite tuned into cannabis at at the administration level. Not until I got busted in the spring of 1970 when a young hippie chick from San Francisco following the uh, Stephen Gaskin and the farm people around the country, or who were to become the farm. This was the caravan in 1971. And they came through Rhode Island, and that hippie chick lingered after the the caravan went on, and she got busted carrying cannabis in her car, and she ratted me out as somebody who would have some cannabis as a way to reduce her charges. Oh, wow. So you you were not even with her or involved in this bus, but they, like so many... They showed up at the door. Wow. Uh, Are you over that? Yeah. (laughs) I'm pretty much over it. Although it lingered in in the documentation to where even 10 years ago, coming back through Canada from Europe, I got to uh, the Calgary airport and they picked me clean. They went through all of my luggage basically took the liner out of my suitcase looking for any form of ca- cannabis. And they said that it had been triggered because of that bust in Rhode Island in 1971. Sitting across the table from you, you seem like a dangerous character. And <laughs> and I don't blame, no, of course. This is, you know, cannabis, in, in, in essence, is such a victimless crime that the only way to prosecute this war against it is to turn people against each other. It's something we see in all kinds of authority 
authoritarian regimes, and there is an authoritarian nature to this war on cannabis, and I'm certainly not forgiving this person for what they did, but everyone is both a victim and victimizer in these kinds of scenarios. Take me to that bust. You you, you open the door and there's the cops. What, what happened? I uh, drove home from school and uh, with my wife, Star. We've been together for 52 years. There was this whole full raid on my on my cabin in the woods, and they were tearing the place apart, literally, just looking for anything. And they did find some bags of uh, weed that I had purchased from these other medical students. The medical students in my class set up a service for brown students where they would list products available and use the university's computer system and mailing system to mail out what's available from their dormitories. And so there was this this revelation to the to the university that this was going on and they were pissed. <laughs> and so they were looking for anybody that would tell the story. And when my bust came up, they knew that I was in the medical class. They thought that I would be a source of busting the other guys. And of course, I wouldn't do that. Uh, well, uh, anonymous brown medical students of the past, I would love to follow up on that in a separate episode of Great Moments in Weed History. It's and, a great one. Uh, but w- w- what was the fallout for you from that, and, and, and where did you go from there? Well, the, the medical science program didn't have any precedent. There was nothing that they had ever faced like this. So there, there wasn't much fallout. They just said, you know, don't get in trouble again. So I happen to know, you know, this didn't completely sour your view of the Gaskins and their traveling carnival of humanity. Tell me maybe a little bit about the Gaskins and uh, how you reconnected with them mm-hmm. and where, where that story uh, intersects mm-hmm. again. Well, when I transferred to Berkeley in, in 1967, my older brother had returned from Afghanistan Interestingly enough, with a a track bag full of hashish in hand, which I don't know how he got it back, but he did. And so my brother and I were smoking some hash, and he started going to Monday night class at the family dog out on the Great Highway in San Francisco. He invited me and said, you got to see this. This is really interesting. So we sat together and listened to it, and then I kept going, and I met Stephen and his family and some of the other to become members of the farm community. And it just was enlightening. It was entertaining. It was heady stuff. I just felt like, you know, I'm going to catch up with these guys down the line. I don't know where or when, but I had gotten my acceptance to Brown in the spring of 1970 and told Stephen, you won't see me for a while. I'm on my way to medical school, but I'll catch up with you guys. That's why I had made arrangements for the Mm. caravan to come through Providence. And later the farm band, a couple years later, came through Providence. So I had some good connections there. I knew something interesting, fun, exciting, out of the box would come from that. And when they ended up buying land in Tennessee, I kind of set my sights for someday I'll go there and and help out as the doc. So when Star and I got out of medical school and and, uh, a year of, I say, when we got out, she would attend some of my classes in those days just for fun. 
we um, went to Tennessee and spent five years on the farm uh, as the as the doc in the community. I definitely want to get your perspective on that whole experience. Let's just go back to the family dog for a minute. Show us through your eyes, walking in the door. What did you see? What did you experience? At the time, Stephen Gaskin was teaching at a local university. That's right. He was at um, San Francisco State University. And he was a, a linguistics professor. Walking into the family dog, this was a lot of young people. Stephen sitting on his cushion up on a stage and surrounded by hundreds of young people and talking about whatever came up. I found it very uh, informative and enlightening and kind of a fun break from the grind of the university. That and the meetings in the Golden Gate Park, passing around uh, the gallon jugs of uh, peyote tea. We were really open to alternative lifestyles, alternative thinking, psychedelics in general. It was it was kind of a, a haven among uh, young people in those days. You know, I had the I had the pleasure and the and the honor to spend some time with Stephen Gaskin and Ina May Gaskin, who we'll we'll definitely talk about uh, when they were uh, honored at the Cannabis Cup in in Amsterdam. And you know, this is a sort of this classic idea uh, of of everybody pile into what I believe was a, a, a number of buses a uh, bus trip that. Uh, <laughs> I'd say you got maybe the worst of. <laughs> In a sense, but it was also it had its good points. <laughs> yeah, let's let's talk about that aspect of this because, you know, now we're sitting here, cannabis is uh, legal in California, much of the country, the cultural changes around cannabis are profound. But this is an era when simply having long hair, simply having any uh, sort of psychedelia about you could could have really severe consequences. Well, it reminds me of the Controlled Substances Act of 1970 and what Richard Nixon was saying about cannabis and launching the drug war and his his words of... uh, eradication, interdiction, and incarceration. And it was really aimed at us with long hair and really, more importantly, the the black people in the United States who, you know, he was quite a racist. So, yeah, we were targeted. And, you know, it's not that I was cutting my hair. I let my hair and beard fly in medical Mm -hmm. school and I could show you some some pictures that would tickle you as far as graduation <laughs> at Brown University. And uh, shout out to uh, and rest in plants to David Crosby. Uh, almost cut my hair and was a, a, one of the classic guests on this podcast. So go back and listen to that David Crosby episode for for a sense of what long hair uh, meant at the time. Almost cut my hair. happened just the other day It's getting kind of long I could have said it was in my way I feel 
course, you know, this was also all tied into the anti-war movement, the uh, war in Vietnam at the time, and Nixon's own, uh, I'm going to use the term henchmen, have later admitted that, 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 that this whole war on drugs they cooked up was an effort to uh, fight their perceived enemies, which was people of color mm-hmm. and the anti-war left. That was that was what was going on then. And, you know, I'm just looking at my moments notes and I see 1971 was when Robert Hepler came out with his letter to JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association. He wrote a letter to the editor in 1971 while I was there at medical school describing 12 people that volunteered to smoke cannabis and measure their intraocular pressure for as glaucoma patients. And he saw the, the intraocular pressure dropped on average about 30% over the first hour or so of after cannabis use. And that was a big deal. That's a big drop in intraocular pressure. And something quantifiable. And so it, was, it would be hard for this whole system that is set up in essence, to deny these medicinal benefits, or at least was functioning that way, to push back against that versus, say, a patient account. And this research uh, ultimately led, you can listen to the episode of our podcast about Robert Randall, the first uh, medical cannabis patient recognized by the U.S. federal government, actually supplied Mm -hmm. with cannabis by uh, the federal government. And and this is also, I believe, the year that uh, Dr. Lester Grinspoon's book, uh, Marijuana Reconsidered, was published. So as uh, cannabis is becoming more ubiquitous mm-hmm. in, in American society, we're seeing the beginning of this counter-narrative mm-hmm. to the war on drugs about these medicinal benefits and and where were you in all, in all of this? Were you seeing this as as going to be part of your your practice or more caught up in the cultural parts of it? You know, I, I did see it as part of my practice early on while still in medical school. 1973 was one some of the early tidbits of Jack Harris the Emperor Wears No Clothes, eventually published in 1985 and then subsequent printings. But he told stories about the history of the cannabis movement dating back to the Stamp Act in 37 and things that had happened along the way. And it was impressive to me how how dirty politics were in trying to proscribe cannabis as a as a useful herb and medicine. And so it was, I was interested in it. I was kind of devoted to it, but I, I had to get on through medical school, get my residency. I went back years later and asked my dean, what about teaching cannabis science in medical school? He says, it's not going to happen. And I was kind of in disbelief because it's just logical that you would teach about cannabis and cannabinoids and the endocannabinoid system and so forth. The dean said, every minute of a medical student's life is determined before they come to medical school. The drug companies vie for minutes, hours to teach about their drugs so that if these young docs are going to go out into medical practice, they know what the drugs are, their mechanism of action, the names of them, and so they can turn around and and prescribe with comfort and just become... Almost like a vending machine in a way. That's about what I'm after. (laughs) Yeah. 
we were just a, a cog in the wheel of the pharmaceutical industry prescribing drugs that we are trained to prescribe. And it, as far as getting into healthcare and the best practices for longevity and health, it really wasn't about that. I mean, we had a few days of teaching about nutrition, but it was superficial and didn't really get into much. And then you you landed at, at possibly the perfect place to have very willing test subjects at your disposal. This is, of course, the farm in Tennessee, yeah. uh, kind of in some ways the iconic American hippie commune and one that is still uh, many, many decades active and thriving and uh, multi-generational. Mm -hmm. um, but take us through your eyes when, when you arrived uh, in rural Tennessee um, and what you saw as an ideal young doctor with his freak flag uh, flying proud. We drove our family, uh, pregnant with our fourth, down to Tennessee and came rolling in. And, you know, the first thing I did was put a hand-washing sink in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> and, and about how many people are living on this land at oh, the time? Oh, my goodness. We arrived in the winter of 77 with uh, 600, 650 people on the farm. Uh, very little to eat, but, you know, a lot of young idealistic people. And the household we we're in probably had 30 or 40 people in it. We were working at building more housing, but people were flooding in the gates looking for this uh, alternative lifestyle. And we were out to save the world. I took on the role of being in the clinic five days a week, but really on call all the time. Midwives were bringing in women from all over the world to have their babies for free. And they just had to stay for several weeks before their, their due date, and then the midwives would deliver them, and I was their backup. And now, as, as I understand it, this focus on uh, midwifery was one of necessity, that uh, setting off from San Francisco with a bus full of idealistic stoned young people, maybe not the birth control availability that we have today. You know, there were many pregnant people by the time they arrived. And, yeah. and I think what's important uh, that you mentioned to highlight is this was a service not only being provided to the sort of hippie community of of the commune, the farm, as mm -hmm. it's called, but extended out to what was, in essence, a poor rural community in Tennessee. And of course, people came from further. And at the center of all that was Ina May Gaskin. Describe how you how you met her and, and how you came to be a part of this really uh, seminal uh, moment in the modern midwifery movement. I had met Ina May at the family dog back in, the, in my Berkeley days. So I knew Ina May. And when I arrived, and was stepping into the role of, of the community doctor, whatever the medical need was, we were trying to take care of it ourselves and not be relying on the local hospitals, which we really couldn't afford. And, and you know, Ina May Gaskin, I believe, in her books and certainly in conversation uh, with me, described integrating cannabis into the birthing process. Yes. Remarkable. Yeah. Tell me about that. I was uh, really quite pleasantly stunned at how beneficial it was. It would kind of help a parturient, a, a woman in labor, just get to a different place. So often there are fears that are held by people because of things doctors had said or their family had said about how difficult labor could be, or maybe there were bad outcomes in their families or, or whatever the cause. 
I, I remember one young doctor woman who had come to the farm to have her baby, and she had had a cervical procedure, and the doctor, when he froze the surface of the cervix, said, your cervix will probably tear if you ever have a baby. And scared the crap out of this poor woman to where she was kind of hanging on, not wanting to get on with labor. And her cervix was opened about four centimeters, which, you know, you got to go to 10 centimeters to really deliver a baby. We helped her with some smoking pot, but I also examined her and said, you're fine. Everything's normal. You don't have nothing to worry about. And then within you know, within a half hour, she had gone from four centimeters to 10 centimeters, had a healthy, normal baby, and everything was fine. But fear is really a problem with labor and delivery. You know, you get people drugged up with morphine or whatever. They use heroin, by the way, in England. That's the drug of choice for laboring women. They would do very well smoking pot just to get out of that headspace. Wow. And... You know, we, we, we touched on some of the downsides of, of being on call 24 hours uh, <laughs> uh, for, for listeners. A look just crossed uh, uh, the good doctor's face. <laughs> I think flashing back to getting woken up in the middle of the night by a bunch of hippies to uh, uh, practice medicine. Um, but the plus side, uh, something that you've talked about, is... That this was a community of people who were uniquely open about describing their experiences with cannabis, and that helped you as the uh, fulcrum point of all of this start to identify some of the many, many uh, medicinal benefits of cannabis through these patient stories. Tell me, tell me when you started to put that picture together. Well, I loved being on the receiving end of a community that grew from 600 people when I got there to 1,500 people when we left in 1982. You know, more elderly people are showing up. The population curb, instead of being two peaks with young children and babies and 20 and 30 year olds was now kind of leveling out. And so these people with all kinds of medical problems were coming to me at the clinic and saying, you know, I'm using cannabis for my seizure disorder. If I get plenty of weed, I don't have seizures. And so I was learning that in the, in the seventies and I was learning about its utility in autoimmune diseases and its utility in various genetic problems. Uh, muscular problems, n neuromuscular problems. Uh, so the list was uh, unfolding to me as to what cannabis could be beneficial for. At the time, in the 70s and very early 80s, we, we didn't really have any scientific evidence. This was just anecdotal evidence of people saying it worked for, and then they would describe to me what it was working for. So as the time went along and and uh, I moved on to California with my family and set up a practice here in California in 1982. It was an easy transition when we got into the uh, the Compassionate Use Act of 1996, Prop 215 as we call it here, uh, came into law. I just thought, well, this is my nice exit from primary care, but also from the emergency room. So I was going out from the farm to the local medical center, the regional medical center, and working as an ER doctor, usually about once a week, and bringing that income home to the community, which 
was a big deal. I was probably a tenth of the community's income as a single person. We were living on about 75 cents per person per day. And they, and they still wouldn't give you a, a better room. <laughs> in a way, it speaks to the idealism. In another way, if you want to keep that, uh, that doctor on the farm, hey, hindsight. Um, yes, that's true. Uh, one, yeah. one thing that uh, hosting a podcast called Great Moments in Weed History will drive home over and over again is that no good deed goes unpunished and of course <laughs> uh quite famously there was a weed bust at the farm were you there uh living there when that happened no i was still in medical training so i missed that uh, there was weed found and three of our friends did go to prison it was a trying time because basically they closed the gate they they felt like it wasn't right to keep the gate open and just keep bringing people on well let's let's move back now you 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 described leaving the farm setting up your your practice and i think still doing uh emergency room care in california um we've had several episodes of this podcast about the sort of grassroots movement that led to prop 215 that led to the first statewide medical cannabis Mm -hmm. uh law uh you can listen to our episode about dennis perone you can listen to our episode about brownie mary but there was also a movement among doctors to back up these anecdotal accounts and was really a vital part of convincing the electorate, certainly in California, to support this. So mm-hmm. as, as your role in all that, take, take me to that uh, campaign mm-hmm. for medical cannabis and, 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 and how you saw that. I was watching the literature coming in. And so I knew what was happening. Uh, I think it was 1983, Alin Howlett at Wake Forest University discovered the CB1 receptor in the brain and knew that THC stuck to that receptor. And I was, okay, now we've really got something concrete. That really was the onset of of the literature on cannabis and cannabinoids. And now there are tens of thousands of papers. Recognition that it worked with spasms in MS and nausea and vomiting of chemotherapy. Francis Young, the DEA federal judge, who was asked to evaluate this this petition for reclassifying cannabis in the 80s, and he came out in 88 and said, knowing what we know about it, including spasms of MS, he said that it would be unreasonable, arbitrary, and capricious uh, to find it otherwise you know, to not be allowing its use. And that that impressed me. Of course, it didn't change the fact that the feds were intractable. But even a DEA federal judge had gone out of his way to say, it's wrong to keep this illegal. It should be changed at least from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2 so it can be prescribed and used as a medicine. And was there a realization that, okay, this is not about evidence because it would seem that the standard of evidence has been met over and over again, certainly at least to begin a re-examination, um, and that this was ultimately going to be a political fight and not, and not one about medicine and evidence. Absolutely true. And I'm glad you, you mentioned you know, Robert Randall, because yes, that goes back to, yes, it lowers intraocular pressure. It can preserve vision. And if you interviewed his Alice or, yeah, 
it, it's impressive that he went the rest of his life without really a loss of vision, where his doctors were saying, you're losing it. It's, it's going to be gone uh, in a short time. And I'm glad you mentioned Dennis Perone and, and Brownie Mary. Those are so, such important people in this whole national change of, of recognizing that it worked for things. And here we have this segment of our population dying of AIDS and Perone just, you know, he was willing to do anything to bring cannabis to those in need. Yes. And, and, and I don't want to discount uh, the role of evidence, you know, without that evidence, without that research, without uh, doctors like yourself and many others making that case, this would have gone nowhere. But it also took Dennis Perone getting shot by the police and going to prison and defying the law and openly distributing cannabis. It took a uh, self-described little old lady like Brownie Mary being arrested and uh, telling the feds to go fuck themselves in Macy's window. Please listen to those episodes. Um, um, But getting back to the medical case, can you explain what the endocannabinoid system is and why it's so important that we now understand that we have one and how it functions? I'm glad you asked the question because it's kind of simple and kind of awesome. What you learn in medical school is that of all these millions of neurons in our brain, none of them are hardwired. None of them just link directly one to the next. They're close, but it's neurotransmitters that send signals. And so the common transmitters that you'll know the names of are like adrenaline or dopamine or serotonin. There are many neurotransmitters. And if there's not a very strong signal in the neurons, there's not a release of that neurotransmitter into the cleft, crossing the cleft to the next neuron, where there's a receptor that receives that. What we hadn't understood until cannabis came along was that THC directly activates cannabinoid receptors in the brain. And the receptors are on the presynaptic neuron, and the natural cannabinoids, the endocannabinoids, are on the postsynaptic neuron. And so if a signal is made, move your foot, your toes being stepped on, you move your foot, and then the signal stops. It's the cannabinoids, the natural cannabinoids, that turn the signaling off. It's the modulator of the brain. So it modulates signal strength. And so it basically modulates everything. So some people are just built differently and their receptors aren't the same. So this, we've come to start recognizing, I mentioned Alain Hallett with the discovery of the CB1 receptor, and then it was the CB2 receptor. Subsequently, there's about 20 different receptors that can be activated by cannabinoids. These natural cannabinoids are in our body. They're made on demand to let the neurons know, got the signal, thank you, or I, I haven't made an adjustment. I need to keep changing what I'm doing uh, in order to maintain our, our, our well-being. And that's led us to understand 
that many of the diseases we didn't even understand what was going on are probably because of differences in the receptors themselves, these CB1 receptors, for example. When we look at people with fibromyalgia, we can see that they have similar CB1 receptors. They're not the same as the next person's receptors, and they're more prone to develop these problems with pain and so forth. In my speeches, I have two pages of conditions, including MS and Parkinson's disease and, and uh, fibromyalgia and epilepsies and so forth, with the recognition that those receptors in those problems are, are similar they are the same among those people, or very similar anyway. So this receptor, these receptors don't work the same for everybody. And so this is leading us to understand that differences in the receptor makes a difference in, in our being prone to develop a certain medical kind of problem. I've heard this likened to sort of almost the... Uh... CPU or central processing unit of, of the human body, that this is an underlying system that supports systems like the respiratory system and mm -hmm. uh, um, the circulatory system. And so w would that, in essence, explain how, how one plant, one set of chemical compounds can be effective in treating what would seem at the surface, like very, very different conditions, chronic pain, yeah. seizure disorder, uh, nausea, irritable bowel syndrome, or you know, inflammatory bowel disease, many things is because of these cannabinoid receptors modulating either well or not so well in the body. THC activates those CB receptors directly. It mimics the role of the natural cannabinoids. CBD and the other minor cannabinoids, an indirect role. It's not directly doing it. It may affect the way that we metabolize our natural cannabinoids, thereby upregulating the natural cannabinoid effect, but it doesn't activate the receptor. THC is kind of the magical one in being able to do that directly. And so, in essence, instructing people to be physicians uh, without the deep study or, or, or even the acknowledgement, in some cases, of this system is, in essence, like uh, saying, well, you're a trained mechanic, just don't look under the hood. It's so true. It's unethical that medical schools are graduating medical graduates without an understanding of the endocannabinoid system and cannabis's role in that. It really is unethical. And now let's talk. We touched on the pharmaceutical industry going all the way back to your instruction, and it's certainly only grown more powerful, more politically influential over the ensuing decades. There's a profit motive at the bottom of all of this. There is. Sad but true. It's, it's deep-seated, and the pharmaceutical industry has its way with this old guard that still is in control. Now, if you were in charge of uh, selling at a incredible markup a range of synthetic chemicals that can be uh, addictive and and have uh, in many cases a low efficacy, what would be your objection to a uh, naturally occurring plant that any person can easily grow in their own backyard and? Uh, safely treat themselves with. 
I, I think you've made the point. <laughs> Very much the case. And even cannabinoid-like molecules have come along. So back in 2006, I, I spoke about my role as a cannabis physician at the International Cannabinoid Research Society meeting in Pistum, Italy. And as a, a tale to the meeting, they had this meeting among the principals of the ICRS, that's the acronym for the International Cannabinoid Research Society, to talk about Ramanabant and the intention to take a cannabinoid blocker and use that as a medicine because if cannabis induces a, an interest in food and eating and a better appetite and helps with nausea and so forth, surely a blocker would help us to lose weight and Americans need to lose weight. So we're going to train the docs to understand what's going on with this endocannabinoid system, give them a product called Romanobot. But then they realized in the clinical, in the initial trials, that there were suicides associated with using Romanobant. And this was not acceptable, and it killed the project. But we sat round table in Pestum, Italy, with this group of people excited about bringing a cannabinoid blocker to the marketplace. We are gonna, we're gonna kill it. You know, we're gonna really, and it did. It caused uh, depression and anxiety and and deaths in some people who had never had a problem with their with their mental health. They took Romanabant, and some of them died. Uh, another one was working at the other end of it. The Bial incident occurred uh, in France probably 20 years ago, an hour 15 years ago at least. And the idea was that they were going to make a, a drug that would alter the metabolism of the natural cannabinoids. And when they gave it to people, they killed several people. They had never done any reasonable clinical trials with other animals before going on to humans. And so when we start dabbling in this system, it it's dangerous. And when we talk about synthetic cannabinoids, I just bristle because we don't know what we're doing. Now, a plant that's been there for millions of years and used really 10,000 years ago, we know what was being used. What's in the literature and a natural plant seems to have stood the test of time in terms of safety. But you go to the laboratory and create molecules that are interacting with this system, we have no idea what we're getting into. And it's just this, I mean, hubris is not even the right word, but yeah. this sense that it can't just be that this plant <laughs> has co-evolved with us and that there must be a respect for that natural process, but just this reductive desire to tame and control everything. And, and that's, you know, reflected in those two, uh, uh, efforts that you described. And, and also, you know, just to go back to 1996, we had a statewide vote of the largest state in the country. Yeah. Uh, this law passed by a wide margin. And yet the immediate response of the federal government was to attempt to uh, literally criminalize mm -hmm. uh, physicians for following this state law, correct? That's correct. When the law passed in 1996, November 1996, uh, they hustled. They were pointing at Micaria and saying, this is a, you know, just a, a fake, a fake medicine show. 
And uh, they, I believe they use the term, this is Cheech and Chong medicine. That's right. Cheech and Chong, both still healthy, uh, performing, uh, and uh, entertaining the millions. Uh, we just had Willie Nelson's uh, yes, 90th, 90th birthday. birthday. Exactly. Uh, but, but please, continue. No, I, I'm right with you. And so they, they put up this board of uh, what Micaria was approving for cannabis use. But it wasn't even his list. They faked it and put a bunch of stuff on there like writer's cramp and things they put on the list that they hadn't come from Dr. McCree at all. They were they were just creating press against the movement and against cannabis in general and threatening to take doctors' federal payments away from Medicare, Medi-Cal, and all those you know federal institutions that would pay your pay your bills. They said uh, doctors can't have this if they are uh, getting involved in this cannabis movement. Luckily, there was an injunction and it was stopped, but it was just the sign of how difficult the federal government has continued to be proving to be as far as accepting cannabis as a medicine. Can you talk about some of the efforts you've been a part of among physicians to, you know, not just make this information available to people, but to um, e extend the the knowledge base of cannabis and to defend the rights of, of doctors in particular to speak openly with their patients. I was contacted by Dr. Micaria, whose name I mentioned. He was the founder of our California Cannabis Research Medical Group. And I was one of the co-founders and we sat round table back in 1999 and talked about the cases that we were seeing and how well it was working. We shared information. We decided to do studies. I, I kind of chaired a, a Crohn's disease study and Dr. Micaria published a use in alcohol, how it was so helpful for alcoholics and so forth. So we've been involved in it really uh, from the start, you know, the feds funded uh, research through the NIH, but they were looking for harm. You know, the only research that goes into cannabis from the federal government is for looking for harm. And one of the things that they discovered early on was in clamping blood vessels of mammals and inducing strokes. This happened uh, probably in the late 90s. And so if you clamp the artery and induce a stroke, you know that in 10 minutes, you're going to have a stroke that big. And so if you give cannabinoids in advance of that uh, anoxic episode to the animal, they found that it preserved the brain and either they had no stroke volume or much less stroke volume. So they labeled it cannabis and cannabinoids as neuroprotectants. And they asked the Department of Health and Human Services to be the patent holder. So in 1999, they applied. In 2003, they got the patent, and they hold the patent still for cannabinoids as neuroprotectants. So you, you can't infringe on the patent rights of the federal government. The same federal government, just let me fact check this for a second, that continues to list cannabis as a Schedule One drug, which would, uh, by definition, according to them, mean a drug with a high potential for abuse, bullshit, and no known medical use, bullshit. Exactly, exactly bullshit. So uh, I, I was early involved in Micaria and sharing information, and we got into vaporizing quite early on. Uh, I remember the big flask on the tabletop that Micaria brought to share among the docs and 
the sidearm with a tube on it and the bowl at the top of the huge Erlenmeyer type <laughs> flask and firing up the the uh, when not firing it actually using a heat gun to heat the cannabis well enough to blow cannabis vapor out the sidearm. So we were proponents of vaporizing early on. I don't think we remained in the camp of uh, vape pens as much as vaporizing whole plant. We encourage people to uh, vaporize if if it works for them. And honestly, back in 2006, uh, my mentor in cannabinoid uh, pulmonary harm was Donald is Donald Tashkin, a UCLA professor emeritus uh, in pulmonary medicine, and one of his uh, students, Hashibi, and he published a report in 2006 to say that smoke, even heavy pot smokers are not at risk of developing cancer of the lung or the airways, larynx, pharynx, esophagus, trachea, or lungs. They don't do that, even heavy pot smoking, which is, you wouldn't think that. If you look at tobacco, with the big difference being nicotine and whatever else might form when you burn tobacco, but cannabis doesn't do that. And in fact, it doesn't go on to alter pulmonary function studies in any significant way. So it can irritate the lung and airways for heavy pot smokers, and you have mucus production. But as far as actually seriously harming the lungs, it doesn't do that. So this was really great news to me along the way to see this study come out. And if you looked at the data closely, you could also see this was a thousand controls and a thousand pot smokers down in the LA basin. And they realized that the pot smokers actually had some protection from developing cancer of the lungs. Uh, so that was kind of an unexpected finding of this of the study. There, there are just so many uses of cannabis. Some of them are quite obvious. It changes your mood. You get some laughter. It reduces anxiety. It helps depression. It, it, you know. And then I mentioned learning about seizure disorders. That was something I wouldn't have known without patients coming to me and telling me about it. And this is where I, I would kind of love to land this um, conversation for a lot of our listeners. You know, people from all over the world in different legal conditions in terms of cannabis and, you know, just having been a journalist for so long and being public about um, cannabis, I'm contacted all the time by people uh, that I know, friends of friends, who have gotten a serious diagnosis um, and they're frightened and they don't know what they're able to talk about with their physician and maybe they've used cannabis in the past and maybe they haven't and mm. you know without medical training but having you know talked with a lot of people i'm happy to provide them with information i'm happy to do whatever i can and we'll mm. leave it at that but what can you say to people who find themselves in this position they they've they've been diagnosed with something mm -hmm. they you know we're fortunate i think now to be at a time when there is at least an understanding mm -hmm. that cannabis is is powerfully beneficial mm -hmm. for a lot of people um but how would you advise people to go forward from there there's a couple sides to this one of them is i mentioned that not all receptors are the same and that being said 
They may be just one amino acid difference in the sequence makes a, a socket of the that is the receptor a little differently shaped. So the cannabinoid works, but not as well as it might. So for, there are many conditions like ADHD, which is one of those receptor problems, and others where I think that increasing the cannabinoid tone changes people's lives. And I can't tell you the number of people with dementia or people with autism on the other end of that spectrum, where regular use of cannabis, not excluding THC, is, is like a, a tonic to them to, for their well-being. There's another element to this, and that is to say, like all systems in the human body, everything kind of wears out as we get older. So people with no medical problems for the first six decades of their life are now dealing with joint pain, or they're now dealing with insomnia or anxiety. And so I really see cannabis as meeting that role as a kind of a tonic to this system to upregulate the cannabinoid system and just make us work better. Uh, you shouldn't be afraid of it. To try CBD, hey, everybody can try CBD now. You can order it online and get buckets of it anywhere in the world. Uh, CBG and other non-psychoactive cannabinoids are coming into, into vogue now as well. THC is the real limiting one, but as I mentioned, it's the only one that directly activates the cannabinoid receptors. So you need a little THC to get it to work. If you're isolating CBD, it can do things. It has some um, activity. But if you really want to do something for uh, many conditions, you've got to get a better ratio of CBD to THC. And isolates, I just don't even like to deal with isolates where you're taking the, the weed and separating out individual molecules. I think we've come to understand long ago that the whole plant works better than individual molecules. There are downsides to THC. We understand that both in terms of uh, uh, the psychoactivity and interfering with uh, memory and mentation and so forth. But that said, it can be used in small quantities and developing tolerance to it to where you can use cannabis as a medicine on a daily basis and do, uh, I think, great things to your health. Yeah, when we talk about cannabis too, I think it's always important to talk about relative harm. And so, you know, if you've grown up with this level of propaganda, if you have natural fears about this medicine, you know, that's very understandable. But if you look at it in a rational, clear-eyed way and say, yes, there may be harms associated with cannabis and with THC, but when we talk about them relative to other treatments or relative to not trying cannabis, I would describe those harms as as pretty small. Yes, I completely agree with you. And I, I always say from my perspective, uh, a point I like to just always make in these discussions of medical cannabis is if you're listening to this podcast and you're However deep into it, I suspect that you you came in um, somewhat uh, knowledgeable about the medicinal uses of this plant and hopefully have gained a lot more knowledge and perspective. You, in essence, are going to be the person that somebody is going to come to with this 
question because you are going to be the person that they simultaneously trust on a human level and that they know has some experience with this plant. And what I believe you need to do is educate yourself sufficiently so that you can present the case for cannabis in a factual, rational, scientific way, but also be a supportive safe space for Mm -hmm. somebody to talk this out and to get past their fears. And the one thing you don't want to do is be too afraid to have this conversation with a friend or with a loved one because you're worried about the stigma Mm -hmm. and you don't want to look back later in your life and say, gosh, I knew that this plant could be helpful to grandma or Mm -hmm. Aunt Gladys or even in a pediatric case, yes. it doesn't mean you're going to make that decision for somebody. But if you don't step up, and I'm going to say, and I'm not going to ask you to endorse this, that may include going outside the law. Mm-hmm. And every intellectual discussion of this subject is important. But sometimes just showing up for somebody with a bud mm-hmm. and saying, listen, I know this was grown well. Smell this. Look at this. Don't be afraid, and I'll be right there. Mm-hmm. You could play a big that. role. Yeah. I, I would. I, I don't want to go without saying be wary of the media. The media is not really friendly in, in general in, in issues about cannabis. As I've mentioned, the, the research on cannabis is generally funded in the United States through NIDA, National Institute on Drug Abuse, and unless you're showing harm, you're not really getting the contract to do your study. So there are a lot of things said in abstracts from papers, research papers, that might suggest harm. And when you really read the details of the paper, you you can kind of tease out that, no, there's no evidence of harm. They're just being cautious. That's all right to be cautious. But if they've said in the abstract that there could be harm, the media is going to pick up on that and act like it's it's harmful. And so by the time we get the information, a lot of times it's not very truthful. And I could give many examples of, of where the research and the media have just not really been to this discussion. When you drill down into the details of some of these studies, you will be shocked at how manipulative um, they can be. And uh, I do uh, want to honor our uh, title of Great Moments in Weed History outside of your medical journey, outside of or inside of it. If you can leave us with a story of, you know, we like to say great moments in weed history happen to everyone. Um, And if there's just a particular uh, moment or experience in your weed journey that you'd you'd love to leave us with, um, we're definitely here for it. I'm 75 years old. I I could retire, but I can't. And the reason is, is that there aren't doctors filling my shoes. There are a few out there coming along, but most doctors are kind of afraid of getting involved in this. It's, there's too much negative press. Uh, you have to be an independent. You have to, it, there's no home for cannabis physicians outside of, you know, a few rare clinics where they, they, it may be acceptable. But the big, 
the big hospital corporations, the big clinical scenes, the Kaisers and Sutters and so forth of the world, they're not allowing their doctors to go into this. And so, especially with the autistic ones, I'm finding I can't say no. I'm, I can't retire. When I hear people just, you know, a lot of people will come to me, I, I hear you might be able to tell me about using CBD for autism. And I say, well, it's not just about the CBD, it's about cannabis and it's about the cannabinoids. And if they beg me to start with high CBD, I'll start with high CBD, but I'm going to say, okay, but in a couple of weeks, we should talk again because you're probably going to need some THC in this to really get, get it to work. And when I find that people are coming back to me after using a little, a little cannabis and more than CBD, and they're saying, we were sitting at the table and our son got up and took our dirty dishes to the sink and washed them. He'd never done this all of his life. He, he apologized for his, for his bad behavior and his self-injurious behavior and for shoving and hitting and stuff that he had never done before in his life. Cannabis changes people. And it is so heartwarming to see these people whose lives have just been well, it's not fair to them to say devastated because they look on the best side of having an autistic kid or a, a nonverbal child or a kid with uh, serious medical problems from, from autism, which is really an epidemic in the world. And to see these kids settle down and, and come into a much happier place in their lives is, is really so heartwarming that I I'm not going to stop treating patients may, as long as I live, I'm sure. <laughs> well, we thank you for that work and for all of your work. And if if the endeavor of medicine is to alleviate human suffering and to engender health, um, I can't think of a more profound way to do that in the times that we live in than to promote this shouldn't be an alternative, but should be really a first-line treatment for so many things. Um, cannabis, if you want to take a journey with a family with an autistic child that had tremendous benefits from cannabis, you can listen to our episode with author Marie Lee writing uh, and speaking about her son. It's called Cannabis Save My Child's Life, her words. But Dr. Hergen Rather, thank you so much for speaking with us all today for all the work that you've done and for everything you've contributed to our cannabis movement. And thanks for sharing a great moment in weed history with me. Thank you, David. I really appreciate it. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.